Hello, everyone. Welcome to From Know to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, professor of English and philosophy. Today, we'll look at our final pillar of philosophy. But metaphysics isn't really a pillar. It's much more of a foundation. Nearly every big question in philosophy that has echoed through its hallowed halls since the beginning of man has a metaphysical origin. And without metaphysics to anchor them, the other pillars of philosophy would likely shake and crumble into dust under the vibration of these shouted questions. While we certainly can't walk the entire floor today, we can at least look down some of the endless hallways. Ah, uh, metaphor, metaphor works again. That's <laughs> came up with one more. <laughs> one more. I just had this feeling of, uh, I've, you know, I've been indulging myself recently and uh, I hope people can forgive this if they care at all, but it's just a Conan the Barbarian novels. You know, I just, I can't help it. <laughs> you know, and, and all of these shrouded, uh, uh, deep areas and buildings and castles and, and pillars casting deep shadows and monsters coming up. <laughs> we won't encounter monsters, I think. No, I don't think so, but you never know. So, We'll uh, we'll look at it. What is what is metaphysics? The you know the interesting thing about this, and I've I've been rereading some things this week, and one of my favorite writers is A.C. Grayling, philosopher writer, and he points out that metaphysics was really the term for philosophy up until about two hundred years ago, hmm. uh, and philosophy was really essentially science as we've talked about before so these it's sort of like duck duck goose or something these 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 phrases have moved but but moreover and this is really interesting to me is that when the editors uh, uh who whoever they were first approached the uh, works of of plato uh, and and were labeling things and they, they gathered things together as um, the physics. Well, then there was other material, and that was after the physics. And so they came up with this sort of term, metaphysics. <laughs> but it's but it's an ac- accidental, um, uh, 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 problematic term that editors came up for, because what else are we going to call these things except after the physics? And so, yeah. <laughs> And this this is still going on today. Um, I think I might have mentioned it briefly in our epistemology episode, but there's a field of meta epistemology. There's a field of meta philosophy, <laughs> which is kind of a modern incantation of metaphysics, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so the category categorizations of philosophy fall into the same problems that the the actual act of doing philosophy falls into, right? You're you start trying to explain these things, and then you're still trying to find that initial basis from that you're you're actually springing off from. You're like, hmm. well, I'm in midair, so I must have sprung off of something. But where where is it? You yeah. know, and yeah, so you, you keep rewording these definitions. Yeah, this is where the language stuff comes in. So, what sort of things fall under the 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 realm of metaphysics? Well, I I, I appear reductivist sometimes. But really, two things. <laughs> what is what exists? <laughs> what can we determine that exists? That's that's the big question. And then what is existence? <laughs> so 
what things exist, but what does existence even mean? And as you indicated a moment ago, that these questions are in many ways comprehensive in the sense that they they cover all ground for all other topics in philosophy. Uh, yeah, and, and astute listeners might be thinking to themselves, well, so where does metaphysics end and epistemology begin then? Because this sure sounds like we're talking about how we know things, right? It's... <laughs> This is like the problem with the Mercator map and trying to represent the world in a nice flat square when really the only representation of the globe that actually is proportionally even close to accurate is a globe. Right. <laughs> okay. So, so which then sort of makes borders um, almost useless. <laughs> right. If you look at a globe, I mean, so many globes have the lines painted on, but you start to think, well, that's really artificial, isn't it? <laughs> and and that's how I respond to that question. I, I certainly don't have the capacity to say, at this particular juncture, this is where we get into epistemology and we abandon metaphysics, because we really don't, because epistemology is a part of it. It's not the only part of it. But it goes there. It's like this: uh, these pseudopods coming off of um, some gelatinous creature that just moves everywhere. There's the monster. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so sticking with our metaphor of philosophy as being a building, right? Yeah. It doesn't make sense to to ask, you know, well, how's metaphysics holding up the roof, right? Well, no. If it's the floor and epistemology is a pillar, mm-hmm. you know, you need both things in order to have philosophy. So it doesn't really make sense to ask. Well, we're, how do we cleanly separate what these things are, right? Yeah, well, yes. the floor and the pillar are going to meet somewhere. They're going to meet somewhere, but where do they meet exactly? That's that's excellent for the metaphor. Moreover, I would uh, assert that uh, metaphysics uh, metaphysicians would say, what makes you think that's a pillar? Hmm. How do you know that that pillar is even there? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, a big arm of metaphysics is ontology. Um can you want to go over, and this could be its own episode in Well, itself. it has been, I mean, yeah. and, we, and we will again. But it, ontology is the, the study of being, which sounds very much like what is existence. And in fact, it is. So a lot of the ologies and isms fit under metaphysics. Uh, so, what what constitutes a being? What what does it mean to have being? That's really on the existence side more than saying what exists. It's, it's one. It's probably the slightly smaller question of metaphysics, I think. Yeah, and so you know, I, I'm sure that listeners get used to me just rambling through our intro, you know, but we refer to that the show as from nowhere to nothing which is a, a quote from a philosopher, mm-hmm. ontological oxymorons, right? <laughs> and that pretty much defines the the format of our show, right? Where we talk about things that relate to being, um, but lots of times they seem sort of contradictory or at odds or going against themselves, yes. which is certainly the way that this episode started off, right? <laughs> Talking about <laughs> metaphysics and epistemology and ontology and what the differences are between these things and, and how they, how they work together. Which are perfectly fine and welcome and necessary questions, but we're, but the best of humanity thus far hasn't been able to answer those. Yeah. 
but they still need asking. Right. I think this is partly maybe what some listeners will wonder after all this time. Why? Why? And you've raised this frequently about with an answer. Why do we keep asking questions? Because we want to know. Maybe fewer of us now than used to want to know, but I'm I'm not so sure about that. I'm feeling more optimistic today. So (laughs) (laughs) we we want to know because to just be told there's an answer or the answer doesn't exist, so quit bothering yourself about it, it just sort of makes life a lot more gray. (laughs) Yeah, and and when we say we want to know that can really encompass a wide range of behaviors or attitudes, right? Um, I had an interesting example this week um, on Facebook uh, where a guy that I know um, posted an article about how, um, you know, Christians should be open to the idea that that there's an old earth, you know, that, that there was a big bang and there was evolution and these sorts of things. And that's how, that's how the universe was created. And I was the first person to to comment on this, and I I encouraged the fellow because I had a feeling that there was going to be a lot of backlash to this. There wasn't. And as a matter of fact, there was a lot of people that I knew that I was very surprised Hmm. said, this is a good article. Like, we need more things like this shared in in the the Christian community, right? Interesting. So – you know, knowing, yeah. So I, it's kind of like we talked about um, when we were looking at. I can't remember if it was epistemology or um, skepticism. Skepticism is what it was. Um, that skepticism, the snake eating its own tail, right? Wanting to know, you can want to know and ignore all of the evidence or all of the other viewpoints and say, "Well, I know that the Earth is six thousand years old," right? You can say that. Um, But wanting to know can also mean being open to the fact that you're not going to know the answers, but you, there are things that you can know that sort of provide you with a picture or fuel for thought that, uh, and fuel for other questions. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's interesting. That whole uh, dialogue you encountered or were part of as we're going through this episode today. I'm going to, not with desperation, but with with intent, try to pull together a whole lot of things that we've been talking about. Uh, there's no closure. I'm not. Nope. No, don't expect it. It's not. It's a, the series never ends. <laughs> you know. But uh, when we talk about knowing, which we we did both with skepticism and epistemology, both of which fit under metaphysics. If we're honest with ourselves, and you were what you were just describing, I, I, some people would say, "I know the world is six thousand years old." If we're really honest about all the things that we don't know, and in Socratic fashion, if we if we really, I mean, I don't even know all the places my dad or my mom were. In their lifetime, I, I don't know the order of every single car we were in. Mm-hmm. I don't know thought billions of, of things about even the life in which I grew. 
I find things out. I have to sort them. Are they accurate? Are they, are they a, a hodgepodge of memory? We were talking about memory before the show. It's memory itself is not particularly known for its absolute accuracy. And so to say that one knows that something is 6,000 years old, just as an example, would be to suggest a, a kind of objective fact, but it re really it is uh, what uh, people refer to, refer to in philosophy as a brute fact. The thing that no one can argue with, that is impregnable. <laughs> and really, how many brute facts are there? <laughs> right. Uh, even even the, the the determination of the six thousand years old, just as of pursuing the last part of that point, it, that was an estimation worked out numerologically through all kinds of investigation of the numerology in the in the Bible, so called. But it wasn't an absolute, even when it was postulated. Right. Yeah, and that's kind of the viewpoint that I took. The comment that I that I put down. Right. Um, I don't go out advertising my personal beliefs, and I won't hear. Um, but what I said essentially was this, right? Um, we can't know these sorts of things and it would be very arrogant of us if there was a God to say that we know how he did things, right? So, so <laughs> I'm thinking of a line, particularly, uh, from one of the, uh, older books <laughs> That's, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Right. <laughs> yes, yes. And there's and there's things like that scattered throughout the Bible, as well as quotes like a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day, right? Mm -hmm. There's lots of metaphorical language in the Bible. And so for us to pick and choose what we're deciding is literal and what we're deciding is metaphorical, mm -hmm. when we're not the ones that wrote the book <laughs> and you're basing the fact that you're reading the book on some sort of assumption that you believe that this deity does exist, very arrogant to, to put down things that are set in stone. But there, I think that there's a comfort into that, right? There, that sure. there needs to be some sort of... Um, People want to... They want to know. But they want to know, but they want, they want to know, to know but, what, but what type of knowing do they want? Do you right? really want to know? Do you really want to know the 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 incredibly complex um, development of sacred texts across the planet, which involve editing, d d decision making on the part of what we would now call committees or uh, the monarchs, rulers? Uh, this goes, this stays. Why? Sometimes based on scholarship, sometimes based on uh, patriarchal intent, and, 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 and. The culture splits apart, comes back together. This group has these books. This group has these books. Somehow they form them back. <laughs> yeah. If you want to know that. And if you don't want to know that and you just want to say, no, it's the, the word of a, a deity. Okay. But not allowing yourself to know that is closing the the deeper understanding of how human such books are. Yeah, there has to be some critical thinking, right? Because like you were mentioning, um, there, there's several points throughout history, the Council of Nicaea and these sorts of things where the Bible was edited. Some things were put in, some things were taken out, that sort of thing. And also there's, you know, there's logical, um, and it, there's logical inconsistencies in some points where you say, okay, well, if the earth is 6,000 years old, and if we have all of these lines of evidence um, that, that speak of evolution or the existence of dinosaurs 
or the cosmic microwave background, then logically bearing out the scenario, what I'm thinking is that God must have put these things in place to deceive us into believing that science is true. And now it's requiring a gigantic act of faith on our part to believe to find this esoteric knowledge of the earth being 6,000 years old and flying in the face of what we know. That does not seem like something a benevolent God would do, right? It just doesn't. Why would you put all of these stumbling blocks in in place? Or why would you allow your 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 uh, negatively charged other <laughs> to do that as well? No, it 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 all, it all speaks of pop quizzes and 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 constant tests. And and if uh, if it's all about a constant test, well, one wonders too. So so that takes us into all kinds of things, including ethics. Right, uh, which is what metaphysics does. <laughs> it, it essentially says, "I dare you to go anywhere. You're not going to find the ultimate answer, but you're going to find possible answers that cause you to rethink everything." Which is often what you say about why you like to keep pursuing. Right, this stuff. exactly, and and that's that's what I was just about to add. Is as a philosopher, can I dismiss the six thousand year old Earth? Well, no, technically I can't because you want to know what? I don't know, right? It would be just as arrogant for me to say that I know that the earth isn't 6,000 years old as for me to say that I know it is. There's evidence leaning in one direction or the other. It'd be just as arrogant for me to say that I know a Christian God is the real God versus a different type of, of God. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of, you have to be open. You're, you know, you're attempting as best you can being born into a human body and being a subjective, you know, participant in reality, you have to do your best to uh, inhabit an objective space and to use logic, you know, logical lines of reasoning and to not let some of those things color your judgment. Really, one of the most interesting things that I've, uh, I've I tried to bring this up in class sometimes over the years, uh, I think one of the most correlative and applicable processes regarding metaphysics and, and people much more competent than I have, have written about these things is that the practice of metaphysics is rather like uh, uh, literary criticism. And I was trained in literary criticism, right? Uh, but in the literary criticism world, there was a time that uh, people split off into the theory being much more important than the actual practice. And so you became a deconstructionist. Hmm. Uh, and and what the deconstructive critic was saying was uh, totally sublimated, superimposed itself on whatever the author might have intended. And I and I think things went really haywire with literary criticism with with that. But that being said, in 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 literary criticism, you are applying, you are investigating a text. You are looking at it very closely. You are, you are uh, taking lines and considering them. You're taking descriptions. You're looking at a through line of theme and trying to build an argument toward what the author might be intending or toward what the characters um, <clears throat> happen to be doing. And I... And you don't end up with an absolute, you end up with a, a considered position that you take on the Odyssey or whatever piece of you know, leaves of grass by Whitman, whatever you're talking about. 
And it should be intelligent. It should be, it could certainly be passionate. It can, can go the range of both logic and, and, and passion, but it, it needs to be a reasoned argument. But ultimately, you, while you might convince some people that, yeah, that's a pretty compelling argument, you're not going to convince people that that's the only read of that particular mm. Shakespeare play. Yeah. And that's what metaphysics does. It's let, let me lead you this way with some questions by asking the questions, what do I seem to come up with? Uh, for the moment, <laughs> yeah, and 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 okay, good enough for the moment, but it's certainly not meant to convince everybody. Yeah, and that's an excellent example. And you know where, um, like we talked about at the beginning of the episode, where metaphysics starts, you know, and where philosophy starts to to change over into epistemology and then change over into science, right? Um, like cosmology is is a big one, right? Cosmology used to be um, a metaphysics practice it's now almost entirely in the realm of science there's been uh, so many observations that have been taken with such precision mm-hmm. that um certain aspects of cosmology are, are still studied by philosophers usually things that go back beyond the planck length at the beginning very beginnings of time but for the most part um cosmology is a scientific study that's where um i i feel as a philosopher you can start to take more reasoned and hard stances on things right so if we are talking about like we were just talking about um like i you know things that um can't be proven or disproven metaphysical questions right about being about um first causes yeah about all these things right we can never dismiss any of those things out of hand because we're never going to have the evidence um to do so but there are things that fall within the realm of science that we do have an accuracy about, we do have a knowledge about, that we can take a stand and say, no, this just doesn't seem to to jive with what we've humanity has spent its entire existence building. You know? Now you come back to what Elizabeth Anscombe, who was a very interesting philosopher, partly what she did was pick up on the idea of the brute facts. And said, okay, there are really two kinds of, of facts. There are fa- and, uh, and we talked about facts, you know, in a different episode. Fa- facts that, that depend uh, for their existence on social structures, on, um, um, institutions, uh, past practice. And then the brute facts that you can't necessarily change. Now, this presupposes some kind of, reality or natural reality and there's and there's that in it but as for example uh one of the examples that she presents is uh gold gold is gold it exists let's say that it's a brute fact that gold exists Mm. but the monetary system which is based upon gold which says this is what gold is worth this year and which is, as with all economic systems, is a great big game that everybody decides to play. They're forced into it. It's not like they decide to play. What else are they going to do? Uh, but it's a. But that's those are facts that are created that are entirely dependent upon an institution, its solvency. Gold is gold, <laughs> <laughs> and and so I, I think that's a, that's a useful way of trying to cross reference. We we think. We know that there was a Big Bang or the equivalent. There was a beginning point of the universe. We don't know exactly how all of that works, 
we may not ever, but we keep trying. The Webb telescope, which is unfolding right now out toward a million miles away from us, is going to be able to show us things we haven't seen yet, which is exciting. But um, what we see, is it a brute fact or is it based upon our own presuppositions of what we're looking at? Are we able to see by seeing or are we seeing always through the veil and the lenses that have been cluttered around us hmm. yeah that's the question and um real quick technical point so i said earlier cosmology is mostly in the realm of science there's another term cosmogony which cosmogony, talks about yeah. the beginning yeah. of the universe that is still within the realm of philosophy and that would be a, a real metaphysical question yes. um you want to give us a recap real quick on on the foundations of metaphysical philosophy um Sure. The first, uh, Democritus and Leucippus, and uh, the they were called, they they became known as the atomists. They were suggesting that everything, particularly Democritus, was really interesting because way back then, uh, so to speak, they were talking about the smallest things are atoms. Hmm. And atoms uh, cluster and make bigger things that we are able to see. But the, everything that we are aware of is, is made by atoms. And if you, if you stop and think about that for a minute, and then and then realize that one of the most interesting uh, presentations of that came much later uh, with a a philosopher poet named Lucretius, who wrote a poem about that idea and it's beautiful and it's fascinating and, and it's uh, and it takes and so it takes what we think of as uh, perhaps a priori knowledge theoretical knowledge we can't uh, democritus couldn't see an atom he was postulating the atom not the atom we know from the atomic bomb but that doesn't matter the smallest part kind of thing we'd call a particle perhaps and that gets rendered in literature in a way that becomes uh a lens or a veil for more accessibility, uh, but it's at, but it's essentially saying what are what exists, atoms exist, uh, and we go from there. Hmm. Uh, then we get into the the, the Plato. I mean, I, I can't go through all of them. We don't need to do that. But the idea of there is an unchanging, eternal, perfect set of things called forms, capital F, and then there's the ordinary imperfect changeable world in which we live and that's where we get these start to get this duality of oh well there's that realm and then there's this realm how do we find the two and and then metaphysics says but what would make you think that just because there are all these different trees that are shaped in different ways why would you think you would have access to an idea of a perfect tree that's when plato starts to get questioned <laughs> does the form exist in an ideal sense, Plato said that the only thing you can know is the absolutely perfect unchangeable. Well, how do we know that? Because we don't ever encounter it. Nothing is unchangeable in the world. So he said everything else is opinion. You can't, you, you, you can't know anything that isn't perfect. And all you can do with that is to postulate that it's there. So I know that I think that I know that it's there. <laughs> <laughs> 
but everything else I just have an opinion about because I encounter it with my false, falsifiable and uh, un, uh, unchangeable and frenchable senses. And so all of that is 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 really the the root of what becomes all across our uh, our discursive time and space frame uh, the idea of uh, what exists and what does existence mean and how do we determine it yeah yeah and democritus with the atom that's like an incredible um incredible feat of of a a priori knowledge right just just thinking your way back into that like it's wild and then Plato says, uh, talks about anamnesis, which we, we, we didn't use the term this morning, but really we're talking about it. Uh, Plato suggested that the weight of the forms was that we actually knew about them before we came into this world. Uh, our birth removes all of that. And so education and learning is not about finding new stuff. It's about getting back to what we originally knew. Hmm. Which is a very regressive way of looking at it. <laughs> can't take can't as a teacher go with that, but that's but it's still an interesting thing. Yeah, yeah, it's wild to think that the time that the atom was first postulated, and then fast forward two thousand years to now, somebody won the the Nobel Prize for finally imaging one of these things. Mm-hmm. That that much later, you know, the the time scale is unfathomable. You know, it's mm-hmm. wild. Um. Do you think you just gave me a a book that I'm looking forward to read on on Japanese philosophy? Mm-hmm. Um, are there any stark similarities or differences in metaphysical assumptions from different cultures? There, there are, but I'm going to step lightly because I've only, in the past couple of years, much to my own shame and limitations, have. Be, begun to investigate that which I should have been investigating a lot earlier uh, and finding uh, books that seem to be of, of academic weight uh, and still accessible to do this and so I've found one by a gentleman named BT who's it's been out there a long time but I finally found it for me uh, about African religions and philosophy and that's one I have coming for you too, so we can talk about this. And then, and then the Japanese. But there's one. <clears throat> yes, there are differences because um, part of Japanese philosophy is, if you could say, there's one philosophy any more than Western. There's there's so many very variants. Um, but part of it is uh, canted toward or by. Uh, not exclusively, but but Zen or Buddhism or Shintoism, uh, not religion per se, but um, that which doesn't require a separation into categories the way the Western world does. I've I've learned a lot from my Japanese students of uh, uh, um, when when I had the, the joy of being able to work with them and. You know, like all people, we weren't, we were talking philosophy, but it was lightly and, and so on. But one of the concepts in, the, in that book that goes into it is a thing called kokoro. Kokoro means essentially, roughly translated, heart mind. Hmm. And kokoro involves not a separation of the two things, 
So even even launching from that and and asking, well, how do you know? Well, I know with my heart, I know with my mind, and they aren't two separate things. It opens up a whole scape of possibilities. Yeah, and that's why I'm looking forward to talking about some of these different um, cultures in the future. Much like you, you know, I, I have an embarrassingly small amount of knowledge of some of these other cultures, but I, I'm really curious to yeah. to get into it. We we just um, passed five thousand listens yesterday. And um, a large proportion of these people, um, it's looking like our regular listeners from places like um, India and Brazil and Japan and places around the world. So, you know, I'd I'd like to do the due diligence of of talking about these people's things um, in a way that is not offensively, um, you know, simplistic. Our our, our fellow human beings are out there with with, uh, all kinds of cultures and societies and, and ancient and current background and i never want to appear as if i'm talking in from an imperialistic or or patriarchal place because i'm not i i or or let's say this i strive not to i think it's virtually impossible to extricate all that because of all the training one has had but to be aware of it and to try to be careful of it and to recognize it when it's there is a first step toward seeing the world more accurately um so i I will not sit behind this microphone and try to tell people exactly what anyone's philosophy is with with uh some kind of uh, superior certitude i can't do that but but to say hey look we know there are these other ideas and we're trying to find out more about those too maybe you know something you can send us tell us a book we ought to be looking at yeah yeah Yeah, and that's and that's important because, and I think the listeners by this point, if you've listened to a bunch of episodes, you know that because we don't even try to do that with Western philosophy, no. right? We don't, we don't sit here and try to act like we know anything uh, because we don't. Um, but the joy in admitting that you don't know anything means that you can look at ideas freshly and and ask questions about them. And so that that term that you were just talking about with the Japanese philosophy, the hard yeah. mind, Kukur, right? Yeah. That reminds me of an article that I sent you earlier this week about um, people yeah. with uh, hydroencephaly, where um, you know basically people who are missing the majority of their brain and their their skull is just filled with cerebrospinal fluid, but these people live normal lives, right? And they are people and they right. are equal with us as human beings. Yes, and so that. But that idea, the fact that somebody can live to be, you know, live a a long life, have a family, have a job, have all these things, right, without having a brain, flies in the face of Western ideas of of ontology, right? But a, a Japanese ontology might say... No, well, you know, it's not it's not just the brain that makes up a person, which is something that as some aspects of Western philosophy have fallen into. You know, and this takes me back to the metaphysics the idea of, of again brute facts. Some metaphysicians say that there is one brute fact, and that is that something exists. Hmm. And I when I was reading that again this week, I always chuckle at that when I say how do you know? <laughs> How can you assert that as an impregnable fact? I no longer can. When I was a kid, of course, you know, when I was first studying and saying, "Well, of course we exist," because I stubbed my toe the way the way some of the of the Hobbes and some of them were uh, Rousseau were 
poking at each other, so to speak. Uh, well, I know that if I walk along and stub my toe, there's a stone there. Well, I I know that I have, I think I know that I have sensed an encounter with something. Uh, <laughs> and we talked about this last week with epistemology, right? And um, I use the information information processing model mm-hmm. of psychology where um, your senses are completely, not completely, but your sensory is senses are a separate thing from the cognitive processing that leads you to integrate the information about the outside world. So the raw data that's coming in, the light you're seeing, or the kinetic energy that's that's hitting your toe or whatever it may be, is measurably different from what you are subjectively experiencing. Mm-hmm. And it raises all these questions, right? Yep. So yeah, metaphysics is, is fascinating. And it, it's really... It's my favorite because it, it it asks these big questions that that are echoed throughout all of philosophy and in in different areas. So let's let's talk about one of them. Um, if the if the ship of Theseus was on Heraclitus River, right? <laughs> what can we, what can we say about identity as a metaphysical problem? Wow! Did you just say? <laughs> That's marvelous. So Heraclitus, to, to quickly review, Heraclitus says you can never stop step in the same river twice. Critics of Heraclitus said you can never step in the same river once <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because of the nature of water and so on. Okay, fine. So now we're going to put the ship of Theseus on the river of Heraclitus. And the ship of Theseus is that we've talked about it before, but really briefly, it's if, if Theseus, the hero, goes sailing out to his mighty quests and adventures, and, and not always mighty and not always honorable uh, and and first that loses a mast and loses something else and they keep replacing the parts he comes sailing back in and all the parts have been replaced is it still the ship of theseus and there's uh, all right so if you can't step in the same river more than once <laughs> and you're stepping on a deck that itself might have been replaced and isn't the deck that you started on stepping on then can you really know much about identity? Is that that's yeah. what you're yeah, and 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 this is this is where all the duality stuff comes. Uh, uh, there was uh, there were, in the ancient world. Essentially, they're talking about two kinds of things: the material, and 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 the atomists were going there, and Aristotle's going there. So uh, there's there's the thinking stuff. Uh, which is called race cogitans, and there's the the extended stuff, the, the actual material stuff, and that's race extensa. And and how do we how do they communicate with each other? Well, we fast forward to Descartes, and Descartes said, "Well, there's mind and body." That sort of has taken interesting uh, split in metaphysical work so that now in in the 21st century and toward the end of the 20th century the dominant mode was a monism a monism toward the the physical physicalism it became called eventually uh, so that so that it's a near now we call it a neurological basis essentially we say that the body accounts for all of the stuff that goes on and we've talked about this in various ways. Uh, okay, that was a quick run through. So, if our identity is solely uh, 
uh, locked into or anchored in our experiences uh, in, as, uh, as this shell tells us what the experiences are because the shell of a body and this mind, this brain uh, uh, interprets everything that we're seeing and how our our fluids and chemicals and magnetic activity are at any given moment is really what constitutes our identity because there is nothing outside it's all us um, then if if i'm sailing on that ship and on that that problematic river uh then I would, I might be likely to say, well, it's the ship of Theseus as it currently is on a river that I know that I've given a name to, but, uh, the only thing I can know about their rivers if I dip in some tubes and figure out what the constitution of the water is at mile two, mile three, and mile four. Hmm. Uh, so I'm an, I, I'm an empiricist and if, if that's, uh, how I'm viewing the world and, and my identity is totally dependent on the empirical phenomenological yeah. All right. That that's great. <laughs> yeah. And so it you going through this whole scenario, right? Thinking about a more eastern philosophy and thinking about um, more of that those those blurred borders and less of the dualism and stuff. It start that starts to look more appealing when you think about this, right? <laughs> Rather than saying, okay, because the ship of the Theseus and and the river, right? These things are all metaphors also for us, right? Yes, they are. They so, are. And so, like you said, I think that there's all of us struggle, well, all of us who have thought about it struggle with this idea. Am I the same person as I was when I was born or when I was five years old yeah, or as right. I was one minute ago? Or am I constantly changing and and in in fact, a different person, you know? And, and what do we mean by different? We, we, we'd have to pick that up because I, I, our, do we know that our epidermal layer changes every, you know, with the frequency of foot in, foot in the time? I've forgotten. What, I, I, I believe days, hours. The, the last uh, thing that I saw was that every cell in your body turns over once every seven years okay so just physically we would say well if we're just talking about our physical stuff of course it changes well we know that our physical self changes with age we, we that we we uh, have lose some capacities perhaps we gain some other capacities we adjust to our capacities so there's a change in that are we the same person we were when we were born and knew nothing and went ah, 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 and, and well is now it's going to be like a zen cone Hmm. Uh, or I can't do a haiku out of this on the spot, but let's, uh, <laughs> ah, the seed, and we know the tree. Uh, what? Okay, so there's a seed for that that um, oak, but do we know what the oak's going to look like? Well, we have an idea of what oak leaves look like. Do we know how many branches it's going to have? No. Do we know how tall it's going to be? No. Do we know it's even going to survive? No. So the the baby as seed, we won't even go back to sperm and egg. Let's just go with the baby as seed. We 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 do not know everything that is going to emerge in the life of that baby, or even in the physical nature of that baby itself. And if we can't know that, then how do we have the audacity to say that 
um, I'm the same person I always was. There, there's an attempt to be, to me, and this is just me, there's, a, there's an attempt for the arrogance of certitude where it has no basis. I know how I was as a teenager. I think I'm really not the same person I was as then. Oh, there may be some, there may be some personality characteristics on the surface that may exist. Uh, but for the most part, while I recognize who that was, I, I do not feel the being of who that was. Right. So if, if if all the physical stuff that made you up, all the all the boards on the ship have been replaced, and if the thread of identity that that travels from birth until now, if you can look at that and say, well, no, I'm probably not the same person that I was because I wouldn't make the same decisions or do the same things, it sort of removes some of those roadblocks into saying that we are the same person, which is Something that sounds completely insane. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- th- but this is this is that that physicalism thing. I I, I remember having some really fascinating conversations with students over the years of, about this. When you put this out there, because first people are saying you're making my brain hurt. Yeah, good. All right, so, yeah, mine too. Uh, but but where where do I stop being a person? And, and I, and I think that we, this is what's so vitally important is that we don't stop being a person, right? But if we, if you measure humanity and, and humanness by, do you have a prosthesis? Do you have two prostheses? Do you, uh, uh, do you have, uh, any mental health issues? Probably, uh, documentably, all of us do, right? So uh, there's no, there's no superiority there. Do we have, uh, what, this, this need to somehow be, well, better than X, Y, or Z? Uh, there's no, yeah, maybe you, you can run better. You, you, you can play music better. Uh, are there things that I can do? Yes. Is it relativistic? I'm not trying to make a relativistic mush. But if we define ourselves by how many teeth we have, how well our eyes function, uh, how many spare parts have we had to uh, put, and I say that with due on to acknowledgement of the horror that people go through and the pain in order to have prostheses. It's, if you, if if we're we're the measure of the just our parts, there's no whole that's more than. <laughs> and I think metaphysics has taken me to the place to say no. I I I, I have to, out of intuitiveness, if nothing else, reject the idea that I'm just only this. Right. Yeah. And that's this is one of the big questions of metaphysics, right? Is is cognition and consciousness, yeah. you know, and this idea, and that's what's again the fascinating mysteries of philosophy, right? This, the fact that we're the most, our consciousness is so readily um, apparent in us. If there were other fully sentient beings walking around with the capability of language. I wonder what how that would affect philosophy, but the fact that we appear to be the only ones, right? And we know other animals have these capabilities. This is a growing field, and that's opening up some of these questions. But with with what we can do, with our ability to be meta, 
right? Our ability to look at our own thinking and examine it. That's what creates this feedback loop that that is what philosophy thrives on. It, it, it is. So how do questions of necessity and possibility and, and causality shape our reality? When you say questions of necessity, what what, what do you that's, a, that's interesting. I like it, but can you can you help me out more with that? Yeah. Um, so metaphysics. I mean, we're coming down to saying: Are there things that are necessary for existence? Are there, are there things that are necessary for, for being to say something exists? Yeah. Okay. And, and so. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Dis- I didn't mean to derail your question. That was. That was. But I. So say it a different way. Yeah, I guess. Um. So I'll build off of what we were, what we were kind of just talking about, right? Yeah. We have our ship of Theseus, and we have our 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 Eastern philosophy, mm-hmm. and it all kind of comes back to a question I asked a few weeks ago about quantum physics, right? And um, this sort of model of the universe that, you know, maybe everything is part of, of a wave or maybe there's a multiverse with mm-hmm. several people in it, these sorts of things. So when we think about these sorts of questions and talking about, well, what's what makes it necessary to experience reality or given the possibilities that we that we have concerning consciousness or the universe, or when we think about what caused everything that we're seeing and we think about um, whether it's God or whether it's a, a quantum wave field or something like this, what? How do these shape the way that we um, fundamentally see reality? Okay, that, this goes back to okay. That thank you. That was uh, I'm, I appreciate you going uh, you qualifying. Uh, this is partly what Anscombe was talking about. It's partly what Hegel was talking about with this uh, dialectical uh, approach to things. <laughs> it's not impossible, uh, she might say, but it's very difficult to, and John Searle also talked about this, is to, to try to first recognize the veils you're seeing through and then somehow find a way to just peek a little bit through those veils. I, uh, I had an experience this week with my granddaughter that I that this helps. Um, she wanted to look out the windows in the playroom. Great. Uh, but she said she wanted to let in the light. Well, there are blinds. So I said, okay, we'll open the blinds. No, 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 Grandpa, no, not. That that not good. The, the, the blinds still there. Can't see everything, right? And oh, you want to open the entire shade? Yeah. So I opened it and went up part way. No, 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 no. Wanted it all the way up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but then in the living room there are curtains, and and wanted to see if uh, what this big tractor was that was going by. Well, it, it, you try to separate curtains. Sometimes curtains get right in the way of the. You try to separate. You can't find where the curtains meet. Sometimes. And you're fidgeting around when finally you open up and the tractor's already gone. (laughs) (laughs) Now, both of those things are different metaphors that I intend, but both of them go back for me to this thing you just asked, which is how do we try to see? If if first, do we recognize that we are seeing through institutional societal training? 
the, the our whole culture right now is dealing with this stuff and not particularly well, but we're starting. Uh, and because you have to recognize that there are things that have been artificially uh, overlaid upon us as absolutes or as uh, of courses that you try to tease those curtains back and hope you're going to see something at least for a moment before the curtains slide back again. Um, so I, I think it's first step is, requ- is requiring of oneself to ask what has really been pounded into me, so to speak, um, by genetics and generations, <laughs> uh, social training. And, and is it possible to still see with clarity of some clarity once I've said, nope, I know that I've got my glasses on. Let me take my glasses off. Do I see with more clarity? No. <laughs> but I recognize that I have glasses. So can I describe what I see without my glasses? Yes. And it's not vastly different, but there's a fuzziness and an edginess to it. Uh, if if I were put in a dark room, then try to say, without my glasses, what am I seeing? There's a point at which you can go so far with that that you might not be seeing anything, but you might be hearing things. You might be sensing other things. Hmm. Um, so I think that's, for me, that's what those folks have taught me. Yeah, and this is, it's a really abstract question, but there's there's concrete ways of um, thinking about it. And vision is a great one, right? Mm-hmm. Um one thing that always sticks out to me is like, if I'm ever in a twilight or in dark, I never realize that like I lose my color vision, right? It You obviously do. Like if you think about seeing in the dark or in twilight, everything is in some sort of gray pallor because only rods are working in your eye. Your cones are just not receiving enough information to light up colors for you. But you never really, there's no sharp distinction of when that happens right i don't suddenly think that i'm seeing in grayscale you know that's just sight or the fact that you know you can your your nose is in your line of vision but your brain just kind of erases erases it (laughs) yeah or there's a point in your eye you know right at the back of your eye there's a section that does not reflect any light so if you just unfocus your eyes and move your thumb throughout your field of vision eventually there will come a point where your thumb will disappear and that dead zone right in front of your face is always there but your brain is just filling in gaps right yeah, so yeah and when you you bring it down to concrete terms like that and you realize oh wow like these are things that are you know as close as we can get in real life to to saying these are facts right there's a fact that i have a nose right there's a fact that there's something out there in front of me there's a fact that there's colors yeah. and, and and when you realize that your senses will not accurately portray the, that information to your brain. Then these big questions, right? Of well, is is there a god, or you know, is there is some sort of reality outside of my senses, or well, you know, all these big questions become um, much more interesting because yeah. you know we have this strange experience. I think that that's marvelous capitalization. Um, of this because we can test these things. But the very, what struck me when you just described it was the very fact when you said, when we, when we unfocus our eyes, 
Think of the control that that implies. I will unfocus my eyes. Well, or I will look at something out of the corner of my eyes as if I, my eyes were a square. <laughs> Which corner am I looking? But when you want to look at a, a constellation like the Pleiades, and last week we talked about the, the, the idea that, well, there are stars, we make constellations out of them. We, we overlaid then a story that came from Greek mythology. The stars don't know that, <laughs> right? But you have to, the, the best view of, of with your uh, unaided eye of the Pleiades is to look out of the corner of your eye, not to look directly. It will be brighter. You will get more distinct of the blue, uh, the, the separate seven stars. And it's really fascinating. Hmm. That but that exacts or re uh, requires the enactment of control. Yeah. Yeah, and there's there's so many things like that just about ourselves, right? That you can unfocus your eyes or that, you know, you blink or your heart beats or you breathe and you don't think about these <laughs> things, right? You know, how much you know, how much information lies below our 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 consciousness and then how that information um is integrated by our consciousness. Mm -hmm. Again, one of the biggest questions in metaphysics. Uh, right. And so you know, we've gone through just a couple of them today, you know, and, and some of the most fascinating things that you can ask. And we've only really scratched the surface. I guarantee we will do other episodes <laughs> on metaphysics down the road. And if not entire dedicated episodes, metaphysical questions will pop up in, in almost all of them. But I think this has been a, a good introduction. So until next time, keep pondering.